Why? This morning's scripture, once again, in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The Word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, it's so wonderful that you've put us in this part of your word at this time in our lives. We need it so. It gives us so much hope and encouragement, Father, as we look at what's going on around us and among us and inside of us, Father. Lord, I just pray that you would illuminate these verses to each one of us in a unique way this morning. And Father, I pray that you use my words to do that, that they not be of my accord, but of yours, and may you be glorified through them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as a world, as a nation, as a state, as a county, as a village, as a church, We have seen suffering a great deal over the past year. And it has come, or even year and a half, it has come in all types of different forms, all types of different shapes. From the obvious, as we look around and we don't have those with us that were here, to the not so obvious, the internal turmoils that come with everything that's going on in our lives The fact that we've witnessed and been part of a worldwide pandemic. That our country has been torn in two by riots from both sides of the political spectrums. We've watched as the church has joined in the dissension. We've seen businesses close their doors. We've seen churches close their doors. We have witnessed people get sick, people die, families torn apart. And through all of that, I probably don't recall seeing the amount of depression and anxiety that is so pervasive in our communities during my lifetime. It's always there, but it just seems like there is one hit after another after another. And they just keep coming, day after day after day. Yet through it all, through it all, God gives us Romans 8, 28, right? How uplifting that should be for us. How encouraging that should be for us. For we know that all things, all things, specifically the bad, Because it's easy when we see the good. The good's good. But the bad's there. Work together for our good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I believe this is the third week that we're spending on this verse. You can understand this verse in two separate ways. You can believe this verse and say God works it from the backside of the verse. 
Or you can believe this verse and say God works it from the front side of this verse. From the end of 27 is where God works it. But then you can have others that say, no, after verse 28 is where he works it. I'll give you the difference. There are those that believe that God sits back and lets us go ahead and live our lives and we do all kinds of things and all of a sudden bad things happen. So then God spins into action. He's like, i got to fix this. And he manipulates things and then it's all worked out for our good. That's working it from the backside. That's a God that is busy reacting to things. Reacting to things that we screw up. But then there is another way we can look at this verse. And we can look at it at the end of 27. That from the very beginning, God is active in my life, in your life, in the church, in the government, in every single thing in our lives that He is working in all the time, constantly, never stopping. And He's orchestrating everything perfectly according to His wonderful and perfect and majestic plan. I would propose to you that he's working verse 28 from the end of verse 27 and not from the end of verse 28. He doesn't react. He takes foresight in that he is working out everything. For who? For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is part of this grand scheme of everything that happens. So while part of us looks at things that are going on and things that are happening and it's like being put in a round room and being told to go stand in the corner, our minds just can't accept it. No, that God's got this. It's okay for us. Pray for those who aren't part of that. But it's okay. It's all right. Everything's working perfectly the way He wants it to work, folks. It's just the way He does things. I'm quite certain that the disciples on that Thursday night when they came to get Jesus were very upset about what was going on. This can't be God's plan. But it was. Working through the hands of evil men. He gave His Son to save us all. So I hope that we look at it in that way. The story of Joseph, right? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, by his 11 brothers. Actually, he was going to be killed, then he was sold into slavery. It took 17 years for Joseph to make it out of that. And he ultimately saved his entire family. And you go back to Genesis 20 or Genesis 50, 20, and you read that. And Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He didn't mean it for good at the end of it. He meant it for good at the beginning when they sold him into slavery. So I caution you how you read verse 28 because it makes a big difference. It is a solid foundation upon which we stand. It is secure in knowing that 
I'm not going to dig myself into a place where I don't know that God can get me out of. That God is working in me and through me and the place I'm at is okay. It's all part of God's plan. It helps us not to sit around and wring our hands and wonder how God is going to get it out of, get out of this mess or how we're going to escape this mess. We've spent last week looking at the sovereignty of God and salvation. We're going to do that yet again this morning. And we're going to expand on it a little bit as we look again at verses 28, 29, and 30. So verse 28 is a sort of a thesis statement for verses 29 and 30 that support it and point back to it and is the basis and foundation for verse 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And then he says, for, or it's because. Why is that? How can that be that all things work together for our good? Because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is God's way of doing things. It is very difficult for us to understand. Because we lack God's ability and wisdom. God doesn't just sit around, and we talked about this last week. He just doesn't sit around and attempt to woo us into loving Him. If that be the case, I would promise you there wouldn't be a single person in here that would follow. Because given our desires, we are wooed by evil. But yet God calls us, and that calling is effectual, means that it's 100% effective. Because you have an unbroken chain here, right? Those whom He calls, He saves, 100%. And those whom He saves, He glorifies, 100%. You don't lose any of them. So from the moment He calls, they make it all the way. There's a great sense of security in that, right? There's security in this and knowing that Scott's not going to mess this up. Because if I'm in it, I will. I promise. I promise because that's what I do. That's what we do. Paul's telling us that salvation cannot be broken because it is of God and from God. And that's why we can rely on verse 28. Jesus says in John to the Father, Of those you have given me, I have lost none. No one can pluck them from my hand. The whole notion of God's sovereignty and salvation is getting a greater foothold in churches around the nation today. It used to be overwhelming. I mean, you, you rewind the clock, every single church in the United States believed in God's sovereignty, believed that this passage was 100% true. But as time elapsed and humanism became more of a culture where we hated the thought of something else outside of our own selves influencing us, then we pushed back on that. 
We say, God's not going to interfere with my desires and what I want. I say that it's more of a lack of understanding about how we work as human beings and how we make choices and how we decide what we're going to do. I will posit to you that you never do anything against your will. Never. Ever. We don't act that way. If you just want to take that to a philosophical end. Like, well, I did this for my wife. Yeah, but there was an underlying reason you did that for your wife because you didn't want to be in the doghouse for the next week. It was still was not against your will. Something influenced you to do it. That's the way we act, right? If you've got a Snickers and a Milky Way laying out there, you're going to choose one based on what? Well, I like one more than the other because it is influencing you. Is it the wonderful nuts in the Snickers? Or is it just the nougat in that Milky Way? It is an outside influence that's working within us that guides our choices. That's the way we work, folks. And it is the same concept with God. Without His influence in us, we will not choose Him. It is impossible for us to do that. Unfortunately, we have a hard time believing that we are influenced, that we are led by something other than what I say I'm going to do. So, the sovereignty of God or predestination has become the third rail in the church today. Don't ever make talk about that word. Don't like that word. It's bad. People fight it tooth and nail. Constantly. They push back on that. If you want to see well-meaning Christians lose their minds, talk about predestination. Okay, tell me. That I didn't choose God because I wanted to. And I've always said, I want to see that guy that gets to the gates of heaven and says, Lord, you overwhelmed my desire. I wanted to go to hell, but you sent me to heaven. That's the guy I want to see. That's the person I want to see and talk to. The beauty in this is, who gets all the credit in verse 30? God. All the credit. And as I've said so many times... If I had anything to do with verse 30, I'm going to be saying, God, aren't you proud of me? Look at what I've done. I'm going to steal his glory because I'm very selfish. I'm very prideful. But God's plan is very different. You get none of the glory. He gets all of the glory. That's the way God designed it. But it's very difficult for us to understand. There are a lot of nuances. And quite frankly, I have oversimplified it this morning. There are many questions that this passage, along with a litany of others, an overwhelming litany of others, cause us to have to look into or have to answer. If God calls us to salvation... And you've got another group of people over here, don't you? You've got another group of people over here that we love. That we care about. Where are they and why aren't they with us? That's a question. And it's a difficult question. 
And it helps in the divide that this whole idea or notion of God's sovereignty and salvation has caused. It's much easier for, easier for us to blame them than it is to blame God. Right? We're smarter than they are. We chose God, and they just ha- aren't smart enough to understand that. But we know that's not how it works, folks. It's what the Bible says. We know that that's not the way salvation is. And we can see both sides in the Bible. We look at Ezekiel 18.32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. We see that God takes no pleasure in that dead. Yet the question is, why doesn't God turn them? Why aren't they turned? Jesus, Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So we see a heartfelt desire for Jesus or in Jesus wanting people to believe desiring these folks to turn and repent Luke 19 and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. So obviously God is hiding things from a group of people. And yet Jesus still mourned over those who didn't believe. And yet we see the contrast. Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, Lord in heaven on earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Clearly, God hides salvation from a group of people. That's what Jesus was saying. He just talked about, I wish they would repent. And yet he's saying, God hides the ability to repent. So where does that leave us? I hope that you all can see the tension that is between and in these passages. In verse 26, Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. To hide it. To hide it from them. All things have been handed over to me by by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom... The Son chooses to reveal the sovereign hand of God. And yet we just saw Jesus lament over the fact that they didn't understand or they wouldn't repent. Matthew fifteen thirteen, And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Matthew 16, 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God revealed 
who Jesus was to Peter. Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So those false Christs and prophets are going to be so deceiving that if it were possible, they would lead astray even those God has chosen. And I'll give you another contrasting passage, this one from the Old Testament. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will delight or will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So this passage seems to be an exact contradiction to the Ezekiel passage when God takes no delight in the death of anyone, right? And you see all these what are apparent contradictions. And I use the word apparent because that's what they are. We see two sides of God. And I think that's what we have to understand. We see two perfect sides of God. And I cannot explain it perfectly because if I could explain it perfectly, then I would have God's mind. And we all know that's not the case. I will say that there is a side of God that looks down on mankind and is heartbroken by our disobedience and our refusal to acknowledge and accept Him. And so, as that part of God, He doesn't enjoy or take delight in the destruction of people. Yet there is another side of God that not only looks down on fallen man, but he reaches down and he pulls us up. So can he be sorrowful at the refusal of mankind to believe and at the same time be happy about judging those that don't believe. I believe so. The mind of God is extremely complex, and yet we want to try to limit him and put him in a box and stick him and pigeonhole him in a place that makes perfect sense in our minds. Well, that's not going to happen, and that's never going to happen. We're never going to fully understand the mind of God and, and how he acts in all situations. He looks down on mankind and he is disheartened because he has a desire for us to love him just because. But then he sees the sin that is so rampant in our lives and he understands that there is an inability for us to love him just because. That if we're going to love him, we're going to need help. We're going to need his intervention in our lives to be able to love him. And yet at the same time, his righteousness, his perfection, requires judgment on that sin and sinfulness. I'm going to give you an extremely simplified, oversimple illustration. Don't push it into the corners because it will fail. It's coming from my pea brain. All right? 
Do you ever not enjoy discipline in your kids? Yeah, I think we all that have kids have been there, right? It's not something that you enjoy doing. In your heart, you want them just to do the right thing because it's there. And you love them. But at the same time, you've got to do it because you know if you don't, then they have no idea what right and wrong is. They don't get that concept. They don't grasp that. So it's, it's a divided person that we become. There's a dedication to the love of our child, and yet there's a dedication that they must know what right or wrong is. So why is it we think that God, who is much more complex than us, cannot desire, on one hand, that everyone be saved, and yet, on the other, only some will be? That's just the reality of what God is and how He's made up. Again, I said, it's a very faulty analogy. Don't run with it because it'll fail. I just gave it to help you maybe process it a little easier. Now we're going to go over a couple difficult passages because that's what we do, right? I told you that if you don't agree with what I'm saying, talk to me from the Bible. Don't talk to me because you think that's not what God is or who God is or how He acts. 1 Timothy 2.4 Here we have, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Before I get to that, we talked in Sunday school it's amazing how Sunday school flows over into the sanctuary so many times. We talked in Sunday school about what happened in your life that made you come to accept Jesus or understand God or know Him. And we bounced that off a little bit, but yet one person, can something can bring them to God and it will not bring another person. And we sit there and we try to think, Why won't they believe? Why won't they accept? Why won't they embrace God? We know that person. We can think of that person in our lives, right? What does it take? It's God. It takes God. It may be something very small that turns one person toward Him for one person. But the other, it may be something very dramatic. We don't know what that is. We don't know how that works. But I will assure you that it's 100% God. And He's the one that does that. So I encourage you, if you have that person, don't lose hope. Don't give up. Keep praying. That's another question. If God's not responsible for salvation, why do we pray for their salvation? Right? If we just, why do we go to God and say, God, please blink, bring them to you? Yeah, I want you to. I want you to bring them to you kicking and screaming. I think there was something in the floor there. But that's why we pray for their salvation. So God works within them to direct them toward Him. That's our desire. That's how we want God to do or what we want God to do. Back to 1 Timothy 2.4. Who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of truth. Now on the surface... It looks like that this is at odds with everything that I've been saying and what Paul's teaching in Romans. But let's look at the wider contrast or the wider context here. 
Paul's telling Timothy, first of all, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. I highlighted all people because I want you to remember the use of all people in this passage. Comma, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the truth or knowledge of the truth. So the use of all people there is demonstrating classes of people. That's what he's talking about. God desires every class of people. There's, there's folks in every class of people to be saved. Kings who are in high positions. People from all different classes, all different races, all different parts of the world. I hope you can see the proper context in that, who all people is relating to. But that's not really any different than what I just said. Is there a part of God that looks down at the human race and somewhere within his complex being would really like it if we hadn't chose evil, if we hadn't have pushed him away? <clears throat> This is a common one as well. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness or slackness or patience, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all that should come to repentance. And that ver- this verse gets used quite a bit. Now, there's big problems with this verse, right? If you want to use this verse to mean what those that don't believe that Romans 8.28 says what it says in 9.29 and 30... Obviously, not everybody's saved. We know that. We all have to agree to that. So if not everybody's saved, what's the problem? Well, you say, there's an issue with their will. God's never going to do anything to overcome their will. I've heard that said a lot. But you're going to look through the Bible, the entire Bible, cover to cover, and you're not going to see free will in that Bible. Because there's no such thing. If it was perfectly free, we would never make a choice one way or the other. Another day. But we know that not everybody comes to salvation. So there is a will of God that is above this desire that he has. Either it is a will of the world in that he is going to glorify himself through this world by saving some. Or there is a will of God that glorifies mankind's desire more than his own desire for his own glory. Those are the two possibilities. If it comes to me, then God is elevating me over his own desire to save us. Or his own desire for us to come to salvation. Or is it something else? Is it the fact that God makes this world to glorify Him and salvation because it flows from Him and Him alone results in His glory. I believe it's the latter of the two. Because as I've said all the way along, the sovereignty of God gives credit to one person or one entity, and it is God. So how does verse 29 and 30 relate back and point to 28? How does it help us during these times? I said it at the beginning. 
It gives me confidence in knowing that no matter how bad the world is out there, no matter what I get drawn into, no matter what I suffer through, no matter what's beaten me over the head, that God is the perfecter and finisher of my faith, not me. And because of that, nobody's going to steal it from me. Because of that, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow morning and burn my Bible and walk away and say, I don't believe any of this. Because God created it, I'm not going to be able to destroy it. And I thank Him for that because as I said a few moments ago, if it was possible, I would do it. That's just what we are, who we are. And so we see these, we read these to have confidence in our salvation that it is secure. That if we are in Him, we will never be outside of Him. But that's the question we have to ask ourselves, right? That's what we ask ourselves from the very beginning. Are we in Him? Do we love Him? Is there a desire to love Him? His desire is for us to repent and be saved. That's the way we really live our lives. You see, Paul's giving us a a behind-the-scenes look at salvation and the depths of salvation from God's perspective. It's how the sausage is made. We have a very difficult time understanding it because we don't have the mind of God. But we trust Him and we take great confidence in knowing that 828, that everything's working for our good. And God's going to see us through till the very end. No matter how horrible it is out there in the world, no matter how bad our lives are, no matter how many hits we take one after another after another, and they just keep coming, God's promises are true always and all the time. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, Lord, these are extremely difficult passages. They are hard for our finite minds to understand, even superficially. But Father, we are very grateful and thankful for these passages. Lord, I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you that I can trust that what you say will be the case. That you're not going to lose battles or lose wars. That you are working in and through humanity to accomplish your perfect, majestic, beautiful plan. And that as part of that, all of that is working together for our good. Give us comfort during these tiring times through these passages, Lord. Let us cling to these passages and cling to you during even the most difficult of moments here on this earth. And Father, may we glorify you. May we glorify you for the, as much as in the horrible times as we do in those that we think are wonderful. We ask that you be with us as we go forward. Give us strength and courage to glorify you in all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.